This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. For the full show and archives, visit jodcast.net. So I'm here today with Dr. Helen Fraser um, from the Open University, and she's visiting us here at the department this week um, to participate in the STFC Summer School, which the University of Manchester is hosting. And that's basically all I know. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hi, Helen. So do you want to give yourself a slightly better introduction than what I've given you okay, there? Okay, yeah. So, so actually, I was an undergraduate here in Manchester. So I'm going through a complete reminisce being here at the moment. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I know. It's so weird. I, I worked out this morning um, that it's 26 years since I started here as an undergraduate. And I always consider myself quite young. <laughs> Suddenly that's made me feel really old because that's more years than the age I was when I got here. <laughs> Goodness. Well, do you find it much changed? A lot changed. The yeah. city has changed. I mean, lots of things have changed. But um, the department has changed and it's not changed. Mm. So... Um, I actually have very fond memories of cycling my bike along Upper Brook Street and Oxford Road and Brunswick Street. And I could still walk into the physics department at the front and I could still remember where the toilets were and the office <laughs> to give in my tutorials. And um, I took really great pleasure this morning as I went in to, um, to listen to the earlier lectures before mine in the summer school in sitting in the exact spot where I sat in my first year undergraduate lectures. Oh, goodness. Did you have a favourite spot? I did. Uh, there, was, there was a group of us and we all sat in a certain place all of the time. Oh, really? It really was. Everyone had their real creatures of habit. And, mm-hmm. and as I went in the lecture theatre... That all came back to me. It was really funny. Oh, I know it's not nice. a psychology interview, but uh, uh, absolutely amazing. Although they're slightly more comfy now because they're all pink and cushioned oh, instead really? of wooden and uh, oh goodness, slamming down yeah, with big holes and the low tables. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I feel today I've really um, achieved one of those great lifetime ambitions. You know, oh. when I was an undergraduate and thought I might want to be an academic, I always had this vision I might one day come back to Manchester and lecture to a a room full of students, and, and there it was. I oh was, my goodness, oh, and now you're fulfilling your I dream. Know, That's so exciting. It feels a little bit like that, yeah. That's cool. That's <laughs> yeah. great. And they all seem to be listening as well, which was even better. <laughs> oh, good. I'm so glad to hear it. So, so um, on that note, do you want to tell us a bit about what you were talking to the students about? So, yeah, so I do laboratory astrophysics. Okay. Well, I'm an astrochemist, per se, okay. which means I ask about where are the molecules in the universe, right. particularly the near universe, so in our own galaxy. Huh? And the answer to that, let's get to the answer to that first, yeah. is that they are in regions where stars and planets are forming, mostly. Okay. And molecules can tell us a lot. They can tell us about physical conditions in space environments, but they can also tell us about chemistry. And chemistry is one of the things that has an impact into the star and planet formation process. So we like to understand the chemistry by combining observations with theory and with lab work. So so when you say lab work, because that's a completely foreign concept to me, and I think to most people here in this department. Um, we, Maybe in the astronomy department, though, if we look at well, the physics yeah, department exactly. as a whole. The physics department, not yeah. so much. Yeah, yeah. But for us, certainly, you know, we hear lab work and we just picture people kind of in white coats with test tubes. And, oh, yeah, that happens over the road in the chemistry yeah, department. Yeah, yeah, we don't go over there. Yeah, I, well, it's kind of quite interesting, isn't it? Because actually in the physics department, they do quite a lot yes, of uh, lab yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have the graphene people now, but I mean... I mean, also still left over from when I was here a long time ago. There's uh, condensed matter research and mm-hmm. photonics research mm-hmm. and things like that. But what we do in laboratory astrophysics actually spreads across atomic and molecular physics, nuclear physics, particle physics. But what I'm particularly interested in is ice, okay. solid materials. So it's like condensed matter physics. Okay. And we really try and recreate the conditions of space right. in, the, in the lab. So low pressures mm-hmm. and low temperatures mm-hmm. like you find in star-forming regions. Yep. And then in this controlled laboratory environment, 
We try and understand the chemical processes that happen to condensed material. Right. Um, the physical processes that happen, how we form it, how it gets destroyed again. Okay. And also we look at its spectroscopy because that's what you get when you're observing okay. things. So you can look at the spectra of some material in the lab and that presumably helps you know more about spectra that you observe. Yeah, I mean... Often, actually, what we need, what I was talking to the students about this morning was I was actually talking to them about when you're observing something at a telescope, you know, we get all this light of yes. some kind from the electromagnetic spectrum. Where does it come from? Yeah. Even people who are looking at galaxies with the 21 centimeter line, yeah. actually, it's a, it's a data transition. It's to do with hydrogen. Uh-huh. It's to do with spectroscopy. Uh-huh. It's to do with uh-huh. quantum mechanics. Uh-huh. And whereas the astronomers use that to talk about the astronomy, the lab astro people and the astrochemists, we kind of step behind it and say, yeah, but what are you looking at? What is it? What causes that? What Why is thing? that happening? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's kind of interesting. Sometimes we hear about processes of recombination, how okay. atoms and, and electrons recombine and, yeah. and uh, or ions and electrons recombine. We hear about how we form molecules like water or carbon monoxide. And we use those very often in astronomy to visualise what we're seeing. So um, just going back for a minute to something you mentioned a second ago that piqued my interest. Uh, you said you were especially interested in ice. Yes. So yes. what kind of ice is there in star forming regions? Ah, that's an excellent question. Well, the most abundant ice is water ice. Right. But it's not the kind of stuff you might find in your fridge. Yeah. So you open the fridge door or you want to put it in your whiskey. Yeah. Not really that kind not of ice. Not the same. Not the same, unfortunately. So the ice is formed by chemical reactions on the surfaces of dust grains in space. I mean, ah, dust, dust is the bane of the astronomer's life. Oh, yeah. people here love dust, though. I love dust. Yeah, dust I love is dust. cool. Dust is pretty cool. I love yeah. dust, but I think a lot of uh, amateur astronomers who might be listening maybe don't like dust so much and obscures <laughs> what they want to see. But if we're not looking... Looking in the visible part of the spectrum, dust is cool. Right. And this dust is cold, maybe 10 Kelvin. That's minus 263 degrees centigrade. Okay. And what happens is if we've already formed a molecule like water, it condenses. You know, a bit like you get frost on your car in the mornings. Yeah. That kind of ice is, it has a structure called hexagonal ice. So if you think of hexagons, Uh all the hydrogens and oxygens are arranged in hexagons. Right. This ice is, in space, is completely what we call amorphous. It has no structure at all. Oh, uh, that's fascinating. Think of a sponge. <laughs> okay. A sponge. That's exactly the kind of structure it has. So spongy ice. And, I mean, does that happen because of the con- conditions that it's in, in space? Absolutely. It's it absolutely governed by the temperature and the pressure. Okay. And water is dominates, but there are lots of other molecular species. It's why we call it condensed matter. Right. Because it really is yeah. frozen out stuff. That's As what that a, means. I gotta say, we're in pretty terrifying territory for me at the moment because <laughs> I did not do well in my condensed matter modules in university. <laughs> <laughs> I ran as far oh, away from dear. that as I could. <laughs> oh, no, no. I, I quite enjoyed it. So luckily yeah, I can right see. That's good. <laughs> but, but there are lots of things like carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide is a, in the gas. Mm-hmm. It's something a lot of people People at Jodrell and other places use quite a lot yeah. to image star-forming regions, planetary disks, uh-huh. yeah. extra galactic yeah. sources. Sure. And in actual fact, if the densities get high enough in star-forming regions or the temperatures get low enough, even carbon monoxide can sort of freeze out, we call right. it. That's the technical term okay. we use. Okay. It condenses and it forms a molecular solid, solid carbon dioxide ice. Ice. That happens at about 21 Kelvin. Okay. Well, give or take, let's say 2021, 20, which is minus 253 degrees centigrade. Right. 
So, pretty cold. Yeah. Colder than Manchester. Colder than my freezer. <laughs> Colder than your freezer. That's definitely true. Um, so, so when, you're, when you're working on this in the lab, can, do you replicate the, the amorphous ice in the lab? We try to. Okay. Yes. Yes, we How's do try to. How's that going? Uh, well, it goes very well. We've been, I've been doing it now for about 20 years. That's okay. pretty shocking. Um, <laughs> but we, we have very good recipes for how to how to make the ice and how to grow the ice. Okay. Actually, there are a lot of fundamental things. So often people like myself, we, we sometimes find ourselves in astronomy worlds. We sometimes find ourselves in chemistry worlds. Okay. And we sometimes find ourselves in physics worlds. And still there are lots of big discussions about the exact yeah. structure of the, the ice. Yeah. But from an astronomy perspective, the really interesting thing is, uh, okay, we're talking on a on a sort of angstrom nanometer scale that right. the ice looks like a sponge. Right, okay. But what that means is it's got lots of holes and voids in it uh-huh. in which you can trap gases. I see. And so it, it acts like a sorption pump. It takes a big reservoir of all the gases all around. And basically what that means is it hides things from the gas phase. So when we look at star formation, there are lots of processes going on, velocity processes, drift processes, ionization processes, and chemical processes. Uh All the processes that affect star formation and planet formation, actually, because it's kind of a byproduct, they all occur on similar timescales. And if in a chemical reaction, you take a reagent out of the equation, if you like, if you hide it away in a box somewhere, Mm -hmm. which is the ice. Or in the ice, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Basically. um, Then basically you change what can happen. You change how things can cool. You change how energy can be distributed. So that has a huge impact on everything else that's going on. Okay. So this thing becomes really important in understanding sort of the synergy of the bigger picture. I see. In modern star formation techniques, when we're trying to model what's going on, we often combine chemical models with hydrodynamic models, lots of complicated things. I can't do it. But but these modelers, they really want numbers. They want to know when does it get hidden, these gases, at what temperatures, at what pressures. We determine those things in the lab. So Uh we get to tinker in the lab and do some very fundamental chemistry and physics. And then throw it all back in a in a process which astronomers can understand. Yeah, so then it, it essentially becomes a factor that can be put into these models. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, cool. And then the other side of it, of course, is when I go and make observations, because I also make observations. I've used a lot the Akari satellite. It was a Japanese infrared satellite, uh, which okay. came sort of around the time of Spitzer, a little right, bit later. Right. But it worked in the near-infrared, so the 2 to 5 micron region. Yeah, so because dust is all about infrared, really, isn't it? Yeah. Dust is about infrared, but often when we look at dust, we look a little bit longer wavelength. So right. people might have been used to seeing from the Spitzer Space Telescope uh-huh. that worked between 5 and 20 microns, the short wavelength. Yeah. That told us a lot about the dust. But all the key ice features, what we're looking at in this infrared region is the stretching vibrations of the bonds in the molecules. Uh, okay. And all the key features are between two and five microns, the stretches of an oxygen and hydrogen bond, a carbon monoxide bond, carbon dioxide bond. Mm-hmm. So we use this Akari, this Japanese satellite, to really look at that and try and map the distribution of ice in the sky. Uh- but, you know, life is never simple in astronomy, is it? <laughs> Don't I know it. <laughs> you, can, you can look and you can go, okay, we've got a picture, we've seen there's some ice there. Uh-huh. But actually, as astronomers, we want to ask the question, how much ice is there? And that's not an easy question to answer because spectra of ices change 
according to how they're mixed with other chemicals, right. temperature, uh-huh. how much stuff we have on the surface. Yeah. So in the lab, we have to do some a lot of control experiments so we understand how the spectroscopy changes. Uh-huh. And then we have to put that back into understanding and interpreting our observations. Yes. And what we get out at the other end is normally a column density or an abundance, or if you like, it's like a concentration, really. Right. If I talk sure. in chemistry languages or whatever <laughs> I might, at home might understand. And it basically tells us how much of it we've got there. Okay. But actually what's really, really amazing, almost everywhere we look where we do find ice, uh-huh. is when we look at how much we have. Let's just consider water ice for a minute because it's easier. So we know these molecular clouds that form stars and planets, they're composed predominantly of molecular hydrogen gas. Yes. H2. Yeah. Actually, the next most abundant molecule we find there is the water that's in the ice. Even though we can't see it very easily because we have to observe it in the solid state in absorption. Yes. And of course, what we do, we observe all these other things. You you read these stories in the press about glycine or amino acids yeah. or ethanol yes. or carbon monoxide, all these interesting chemicals yes. that are all emitting in the gas phase. And, yes. and most of them are there because chemistry has happened in the on the ice and in the ice Everything's been kicked off back to the gas uh-huh, phase. Uh-huh. So this huge molecular reservoir we have in star-forming regions, all down to the ice. Well, that is amazing. That's really fascinating. Um, so before we wrap it up, I want to ask you something kind of unrelated. Uh, Great. I like unrelated. Uh, yeah, yeah. So just something <laughs> I'm a little bit curious about. So you're you're um, with the Open University. And I don't know a whole lot about that institution. So where are you actually based? Okay, so in the Open University, we're based in Milton Keynes. All of our postdocs okay. and our PhD students, we all, and the academics, we all exist in a real physical building. Okay. In Milton Keynes. Because <laughs> I was kind of uh, picturing you just sort of up in the clouds somewhere. No, 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 no. <laughs> we're not that ethereal yet. Pervading <laughs> everyone's mind. Right. No, we're all very much based there and okay. our labs are based there and that's where we do our research. Right. Unless, of course, we're at a telescope. But yes. as you know, these days, when we go observing, we're normally yes. sat at our computer at our desk. It's these true. Days. It's true. Much less romantic yep but our undergraduate students who also study astronomy you know the open university um trains more astronomy undergraduate students than any other institution in the united kingdom no way that's amazing yes way so we have a huge number so hi out there anyone from the ou who's listening (laughs) a little plug there but um we our undergraduate students work by distance learning yes so they work with online courses, okay. maybe books, okay. and they have local tutors. Yeah. And so as academics, we're doing a lot of the preparation behind the scenes right, and running right, the, right. helping to run the courses. Okay. And, uh, and do you like record lectures or do you just send out notes? No, or? we don't. You it's don't. something I really miss, I must admit. <laughs> I, before I was there, I was um, in Strathclyde University okay. and I used to love, really love face-to-face lecturing yeah. with the undergraduates, something I really miss. Yeah. Something I really enjoyed today when I came back to Manchester, Oh, good. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> Good, I'm glad. Well, anyway, so uh, that was Dr. Helen Fraser telling us about Space Ice and the, the Open University. And uh, I'm going to wrap this up now because we have an STFC summer school dinner to get to. Yes, we have to go and have our drinks. We well. do have to go have our drinks. A little bit so of our, alcohol with ice. Our gins and tags with ice. <laughs> but not amorphous ice. No, not amorphous ice. That wouldn't be good for us. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Helen. Thank you for having me. 